morning we'll be reading from Isaiah, and then again from Luke, starting with Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Second scripture reading is now from the Gospel of Luke. Reading Gospel of Luke chapter 9. And we'll be reading from verses 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray now to the Lord to help him to help us to understand. Lord, it is good to be able to be back among your people, to be hearing your word again this very morning. And you are the one who is speaking. We are here to listen to your beloved son. And as we hear the words of Jesus Christ himself, we pray that you would make your word powerful. You have promised that your word will not return to you void, but it will do exactly what you have purposed. And we pray that you would work that word into our hearts, that as we do see Jesus Christ in his glory, we would be changed. That our sin would be confronted that our unbelief would be shown for what it is, and that we would be encouraged to follow you more closely, knowing who you are and what your promises are for us. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
So this morning we are reading uh, and hearing from Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, you may remember that part of the, the point of this entire chapter is really asking two significant questions. The first one is, who is Jesus? That continues to come out through this entire chapter. If you look just a little bit previously in verses, uh, again in verse 18 and then down to 20, there's a significant turning point when those questions about who Jesus is finally get answered by the Apostle Peter. He recognizes who Jesus is, but he only recognizes in part. And this passage today is showing us more about who Jesus is. But the other major question in this entire chapter is what does it mean to follow Jesus? If this is Jesus, what does it mean to be his disciple? And in our passage today, we also see that. We see a call to listen to the beloved son. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's the call for every disciple. Now, when I was younger, one of the things that we did as a family is we would go out to the movies. You'd go out to the movie theater. I haven't done that in a few years, certainly, but we would go out, and one of my favorite parts, this probably tells you something, my favorite parts were the previews. You know, you get there, you sit down in the seat, and then there's a preview. There's a, a, a short version of a movie That's coming soon. And and the point of the preview is that they want you to come back to watch that feature film, right? But as you think about a preview, it's actually really hard to do a preview right. You want to make sure that the people know what the whole story is about. You want to hit the high points, and you've only got a few minutes to do it. Our passage tonight, or right now, is like a preview. And it's a preview of who Jesus is. Remember, that's one of the main questions of the chapter. God is giving us a preview of who Jesus is and what he will do. Really, what what God is doing in these verses in 28 to 36 is God is confirming Jesus' unique identity and his work, and he calls for an appropriate response. So again, what he's doing, he's confirming Jesus' unique identity and his work, and then he's calling for an appropriate response for us. Again, answering who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So we look at this passage together. It's really structured around revelation and response. God reveals something about Jesus, and then the three apostles, Peter, James, and John, they respond to what they've just seen or what they've just heard. And that's actually how we're going to work our way through the passage looking at God's revelation, and then at the apostles' response. So there's four basic pieces here. God reveals Jesus to be the superior Savior, verses 28 to 31. Then the apostles respond. Then God reveals Jesus to be the speaking Son, in verses 34 to 35. And the apostles respond. So let's follow Luke as he goes through Revelation and response. The first thing that God reveals in this passage is he shows Jesus to be the superior Savior. That's in the opening verses, 28 to 31. Now, our passage actually begins by looking backward to what Jesus has just been saying. Notice how it starts. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and, and John and James. 
Luke's point is that what is about to happen in these verses is directly related to everything that Jesus has just been teaching. What Jesus has taught the apostles in the previous verses is that He is the Son of Man. And that means that He will experience suffering and glory. But Jesus also in the previous verses has been teaching the crowds. And He's taught them that anyone who follows Jesus will experience suffering and glory. The pattern of Christ, the Son of Man, is the pattern of His followers. So what we're about to see here is directly related to what He has just said. Now, now the first sign that anything is unusual in our passage is rather dramatic. As Jesus prays to His Father, look in verse 29, the appearance of His face was altered and His clothing became dazzlingly white. What is happening here is that Jesus' heavenly glory is being revealed. You may remember other places in the Bible with similar descriptions. For instance, think of Moses. When he comes out of the presence of God, his face is shining. Exodus 34. We're actually a little bit later in Luke when they come to the tomb. Who do they see? Well, they see angels with dazzling clothes. In both of those cases... The shining and the dazzling is showing the glory of heaven. It's really showing the glory of God that they are reflecting. Now, Jesus, we know, had that kind of glory. He has the glory of the Father when He was with His Father in heaven. He is the eternal Son. But the glory that Jesus displays now in this section is not just the glory of the Son. It's the glory of the Savior. What the apostles are seeing with their eyes is the glory that Jesus has as the Savior and the glory that He has as the Savior when His work of salvation is complete. Again, looking at the immediate context, Jesus has also just taught the crowds about that coming glory. He's told them that when He returns with the second coming, He will come in glory with His angels. Verse 26. When Jesus returns, when he actually comes back at that second coming, well, that's, that's really the end of his entire work of salvation. We've seen, as we often think about it, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, but his salvation is not over till he comes back. Because at that point, and only at that point, will all his people be saved, all his people will then be raised, And all his people will be glorified and join him in heaven forever. At that point, salvation will be complete when he returns. But when Jesus is on the mountain now, his work as Savior isn't complete. He hasn't even died yet or been raised yet. So what we're getting is a preview, a look ahead to Jesus' glory. Another way to think about it is we see the end of the story in these very few verses here. Now, the focus is on Jesus' glory as the Savior. And actually, that focus is emphasized by who comes with Jesus. Not just His apostles, but notice who appears with Him. There is Moses and Elijah. Luke writes, And behold, two men were talking with Him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, both who Moses and Elijah are 
And also, what they say are very important. Moses and Elijah, in one sense, are representing the entire Old Testament. Moses, the prophet, Elijah, the prophet as well, both of them are pointing forward to Jesus, the Savior. But Moses and Elijah's individuals also have special roles in the Old Testament, pointing forward to Jesus and his work of salvation. Think think of Moses. We think of him as a prophet. We think of him as the lawgiver. But remember that Moses is the one who leads the exodus as well. God saves his people using Moses. Moses and the exodus are a picture forward of God's work of salvation in Jesus Christ. What about Elijah? Again, Elijah the prophet. God actually is more, does more with Elijah than just what Elijah says. Think about in the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, God promises to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We know that this prophecy is fulfilled in part by John the Baptist. Jesus identifies him as the Elijah who has come. But Elijah's presence, the actual Elijah's presence here on the mountain, focuses our attention on the great and awesome day of the Lord. Because in the Old Testament, that day of the Lord that's been promised is a day of salvation and judgment. And Elijah's presence on the mountain shows that Jesus is starting that day of salvation and of judgment. So who they are is important, but also what Moses and Elijah say is also very important. Notice what they speak about. They're talking with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You may notice a little footnote in your Bible on that word departure. If you look down at the bottom... In the original language, this word is exodus. I think that's very significant. What they are talking about is Jesus' exodus. Remember the context. I just talked about Moses and the exodus. The exodus in the Old Testament is one of the clearest pictures of the salvation that God brings to his people. And now we have Moses and Elijah speaking about Jesus's. Exodus. They are speaking together about Jesus' work of accomplishing salvation. They're talking about Jesus' suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. These, These opening verses here, setting this scene, these are really supposed to be showing us that Jesus is the superior Savior. He's not just a Savior like Moses. Moses points forward to him. He's not just one who comes as Elijah before the day of the Lord. No, he is the one who brings the day of the Lord. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. And Moses and Elijah are some of the greatest signposts, some of those greatest pictures of the coming Savior. But now, the reality is there. All the things that they have been pointing toward The man and the mission of Jesus Christ, he's here. He is superior to anything that they were able to do. He is superior to anything that they were able to say. He is the superior Savior, finally arrived on the scene. So this is what Jesus is doing. This is what Moses and Elijah are doing. But how do the apostles respond 
to what they see? How do they respond to the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ yet? Well, unfortunately, it becomes very clear. They misunderstand what they see. They try to preserve the moment instead of understanding the unique significance of Jesus that the moment is supposed to be teaching them. Let me show you how. Look in verse 32. How do we first meet the three apostles? Well, they're sleeping. They're sleeping when the event begins. When they wake up, they see Jesus' glory. They see Moses and Elijah. It's very clear. But despite all they see, it's almost like they're still spiritually asleep because they don't understand what's happening. You see that starting in verse 33 very clearly because Moses and Elijah, they're getting ready to leave. But when Peter sees that, he springs into action. And his plan is to build three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, so that they can all stay together. And on one level, it's, it's hard to criticize Peter. This is one of the most dramatic moments of his life. His master is shining with heavenly glory. And two of the most important people from the Old Testament are right there in front of his eyes. Peter wants to preserve what he's seeing and experiencing. But as Luke makes clear, Peter did not understand what he was saying. He did not understand what his plan meant. Because Peter's plan has really big problems. Think about it first. If they all stay up on the mountain together, the salvation that Jesus is meant to bring, that, that won't happen. Jesus' exodus will not take place on the mountain. It only takes place at Jerusalem. That's the first problem. But the second problem is that Peter is trying to preserve something that God means to be temporary. Remember, Moses and Elijah, they are leaving they are on their way out. Why? Because God is bringing them back to be with himself. That's a very important point. At the end of the entire scene, it's just Jesus who is left. God is making the point very clearly that Jesus is superior. Jesus is unique. Maybe I can put it another way. Peter, essentially what Peter is doing is he's trying to preserve an Old Testament vision. He wants to hold on to that. But God is showing that Jesus is greater than anything in the Old Testament. But Peter and John and James completely miss the point. But God graciously and majestically responds to the apostles' confusion and misunderstanding with another act of revelation. That's what we see in verses 34 to 35, that now God reveals Jesus not just to be the superior savior, but now he shows him to be the speaking son. This next revelation that God gives goes far beyond the presence of Moses and Elijah because now God himself comes down and speaks directly to the apostles to confirm who Jesus is and then to command the apostles in light of who Jesus is. Verse 34, as Peter was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This is clearly no ordinary cloud. This is the cloud of God's presence. In the Old Testament, God is often present with his people through a cloud. Remember, back in the book of Exodus, the cloud which represented God's presence 
rested on the tabernacle and actually guided the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 long years. But it's striking here, the apostles experienced more than just God's presence in the cloud. God actually speaks directly to them. Verse 35, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. God identifies Jesus as his son and as his chosen one. Both of those titles are messianic. They are pointing to Jesus as the Christ, as the Savior, the one who God has sent who will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is God's son. We know that Jesus, again, is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But when God calls Jesus his son here, he seems to be referring to Jesus as his son in his role as Savior. Think, for instance, of Psalm 2. We actually sang it earlier in the service. That whole psalm is really about the role and the reign of the Messiah. And sonship is very, very important in that psalm. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. And that, that son is then shown to be the one who is going to rule the world, verses 8 through 9. And at the very end of that psalm, allegiance to the Son is commanded and blessing is promised. So when God tells the apostles that Jesus is his Son, God is telling him that Jesus is the Messiah who will rule creation for God. This is the bigness of the vision that God has. But God also calls Jesus not just his son, but his chosen one. The chosen one is also referring to Jesus as the Savior. This title comes from Isaiah 42, one of the servant songs. Here's what God says in Isaiah 42. We read it earlier. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations." Did you hear the similarity between Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42? Both of them are speaking of the Messiah as the king of the whole world. Again, this is the depth of the revelation that Jesus is being shown to be. We know that that rule, that promised rule that God is pointing his disciples toward, we know that rule begins really with Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And he rules right now as the successful, exalted Savior. But when Jesus is shown to be that chosen one, shown to be that son, shown to be that ruler of all creation, well, in Luke 9, his work isn't completed yet. But God's speech here is like a promise. Because what God says is always true. God speaks and he shows the success of Jesus' work of salvation. But even as God shows who Jesus is, he isn't done with the apostles. He leaves them with a very simple command. He says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus because he is my son, because he is my chosen one. Jesus has the authority and the right to speak and to be listened to because he is God's son and God's servant. Let me give you an Old Testament connection here. Moses promised 
that God would send a prophet like Moses who would speak to the people for God. See that in Deuteronomy 18. And the people must listen to him. The wording in Deuteronomy 18 is almost identical to what God says here. If the people did not listen to this coming prophet, God would judge them. Well, that promised prophet, he's here. He's here in the Gospel of Luke. That promised prophet is Jesus. If the apostles then do not listen to Jesus and accept his teaching as the word of God, then God will judge them. What are they supposed to listen to Jesus about? What has he been teaching them about? Well, again, in the the context of Luke chapter 9, they have actually heard some very hard words from Jesus. They They have to listen to him, obey him, when he says that he is the suffering, dying, and rising Son of Man, that the cross must come before the crown, and that Jesus requires his disciples to follow that very same pattern. Maybe to put it another way, the disciples must listen and accept what Jesus says about who he is and about who they are as well. A general application here is that this truth is the exact same for us. We're not apostles like Peter and John and James, but we also must accept what Jesus the Son teaches. What has Jesus taught us? Well, he's actually shown us all the way through Scripture as he speaks that we are sinners. And then apart from God's work of salvation in him, we are bound for hell. And what does Jesus tell about himself? He says, I am the only way, the only truth, the only life that we must believe that he died on the cross for our sins and that in him and in him alone, we have forgiveness and fellowship with God again. So we actually must also listen to Jesus as that speaking son, the fullest revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1, that's one of the major points of the author of Hebrews, that now God has spoken in all these different ways in the Old Testament, but now he's spoken in his son. And if we refuse to listen to his own son, we too will face judgment. This is a An amazing thing that the apostles have just heard from God. But how do they respond? Look in verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, as the revelation ends, Jesus is found alone. This is the same Jesus. Think about it. This is the same Jesus who they followed up that mountain only a few hours before. But they cannot look at him ever again in the same light. Because they have seen Jesus now. They've seen him in the glory that he will receive when his work of salvation is completed. They've seen him as the Savior who far surpasses anything in the Old Testament. And they've seen him as the one specially chosen by God to save his people, to rule the world, and to speak. With God's authority, Jesus standing alone on the mountain in front of them, this is really the point of the entire revelation. That preview that they had, that glimpse into the future, it's it's over now. But the glorious identity and work of Jesus has been on full display. 
How do the apostles respond to this man, this master, this savior that they have just seen? How would you have responded if you had been there? What would you have done? Might be surprising to us because they are completely silent. In fact, Luke makes it clear they don't say anything about this event during those days, the days of Jesus' ministry on earth. In the Gospel of Mark, we read that Jesus actually specifically told them to be quiet. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had actually risen from the dead. So the apostles' silence is a result of Jesus' command. But Jesus' command actually seems to be linked to the disciples' confusion. Just a little while later, actually in verse 44, Jesus again teaches on the necessity of his death. And do they listen to him? No, they do not understand. They may hear the words, but they do not understand what he means. The disciples would only understand the significance of what they've seen on the mountain and what they hear from Jesus after he's actually died and been raised. Then and only then will they be able to understand and explain to others the significance of what they've seen. Maybe it's, maybe it's a little like this. When you're building a puzzle, you can, you can look at that box, right, and see the completed picture. We were actually just building a puzzle this past week, and my sons were following the box very carefully, trying to hold up the piece and make it fit. But what would it, what would it be like if I just held that box up to you, you could see the box, and then I put it away, and I told you to complete the puzzle? Well, when you look at the pieces... It might not make sense how they all fit together. But once you did it all together, once you actually fit everything together, you'd get the same picture as on the box, right? Well, the apostles are actually experiencing something similar. They got one look at the total picture of Jesus and his work, but the picture doesn't make sense to them yet. It's only as the pieces of Jesus' identity and work come together in real time Maybe as Jesus builds that puzzle, if you will, especially in his suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, it's only then that the apostles understand the picture that they've seen. That's what's happening. So the apostles, they respond in silence and in confusion until Jesus again later opens their minds and opens their heart to understand who he is, what he's come to do, And what they need to do as well. But how should we respond? How do we respond to seeing this glorious Son and Savior? Well, one application that comes right out of Peter's own experience is that this passage serves as confirmation of the gospel. Peter actually writes about this event later in 2 Peter 1. And Peter says there that he and his companions proclaim the gospel to his readers because... They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. And he doesn't just mean Jesus' majesty at the resurrection. He specifically points back here to Jesus on the mountain. When Jesus confirmed, when Jesus' identity was confirmed by God, what Peter saw here on that day drove him later to proclaim the gospel to others. None of us have seen Jesus like this. None of us have seen Jesus after his resurrection. 
And yet this passage from Luke 9 confirms to us that the entire gospel is true. And when we read this passage, we can see a triumphant, glorious, and returning Savior because actually Peter and ourselves are still looking forward to this vision becoming reality when Jesus returns in the glory of the second coming. But that picture here, what we have seen here, should drive us not just to look ahead to the second coming, but to share the gospel now. Because this truth of who Jesus is in all his glory is worth sharing with everyone. Everyone actually must hear the same call to listen. Not to me, not to you, but to listen to Jesus Christ, the Son and Chosen One of God. This passage, though, also gives us great confidence because we do see the glory of the Savior who rules the world. He's ruling right now. He is extending the kingdom of God to the furthest parts of the earth. As we pray for missionaries, as we pray for believers around the world, we are praying the truths of this passage that my chosen one, my son, is ruling and reigning. As he extends his kingdom around the world, he's also extending his kingdom into individual hearts. He is winning people to himself, and then he's renovating that heart. He's making us more and more members of his kingdom. This vision that we see here, this vision of Jesus, the Savior who rules, gives us actually great comfort that the victory is won. And now every day, as we live, as we fight, as we pray, we can look back to a passage like this and see in confidence, we can see Jesus' power and victory now, and we can see his power and victory as he comes back to rule forever in the second coming. Really what Peter and James and John see here, it's only a preview. Only that few moments as the future is shown to them. Can you imagine what it will be like to experience the full reality, the full reality when Jesus returns? For some, for some, it will be a day of terror. Do you want to see your Savior? Do you want to see the chosen one of God who comes back in glory to judge and to rule? If you're a believer, this will be the best day of your life because now the king will have come and we will go to meet him and to be made like him and to reign with him forever. But if you are not a believer, this vision in Luke 9 should scare you because this is true. This will come and you will meet not just the one who listens and invites you to come to him, But then he will be the one who you need to listen to as your judge. Who, as he speaks truth, will speak about your sin and about your judgment. And as he speaks as God with the authority and power of God, your eternal fate will be sealed. So there's great comfort for the believer as we see this vision of our coming Savior. But there is also great terror, great Discomfort, 
great pain even for others as they come to see. Jesus, we don't know when he's returning, but we know he is returning soon. And when he comes back, every one of us, believer and not, will see this son, this chosen one coming in his glory. I pray that this will be a day that we will rejoice in. And I pray also that as we look ahead to see his second coming, and again as we see his kingdom being built now, that we would not just pray to be part of that, pray to be found in him at the second coming, but also pray and work as part of that kingdom, as part of bringing others to come, and not just to bow the knee to the king in submission, but also to bow the knee to the king in love as they see that this command to them to listen is a gentle command as Jesus calls them to listen and to be saved. This is a great promise and a great priority for us as we serve our risen king. Amen. Let me close in prayer before we sing. Lord, it is true that as we do walk in this world, we need moments like this where we see with so great clarity who you are and what you have called us to be and to do. And as we do see you as the glorious Son, the one who is accomplishing salvation, who is winning souls to God, we pray that you would encourage us to serve you in the day by day that we would be found to be faithful members of your kingdom and that we would be found to be faithful soldiers who are proclaiming your word to others and encouraging others and calling others to come and listen to Christ and to listen to Christ while today is the day of salvation. And Lord, as we listen to you, as we hear from you, we pray that you would make us more and more like your glorious Son, so that when he returns, and when we meet him, we will be made like him, and we will be able to reign with him forever and ever. Thank you for this vision, and we pray that this would rule our lives as we serve you in the week ahead. We pray this all now in Jesus' name. Amen.